Job 36 and 37. This is Elihu's fourth uh, and final speech. This is one of those times where I think it's a good reminder. Jake always gives us a hard time because of his broken Bible without numbers to remind us that the numbers are not inspired and infallible. Those were added after the fact. And sometimes chapter divisions come at real inopportune times. Uh, It's also the case that the headings on your Bible are not inspired and infallible. And they're a little frustrating sometimes because they can do some of the interpretive lifting for you. Chapter 35, Elihu condemns Job. That's pretty strong language. I don't think that's actually what's happening there. I think Elihu is doing the hard work of challenging someone who has decided they will not be comforted in their circumstances. And so I do think it's just a good reminder, sometimes skipping over those chapter headings or trying to read without being influenced by them can be helpful as we see uh, every now and then they put too much of an interpretive gloss on things. Elihu's fourth speech. Christopher Ash, I think, gets this speech better than Derek Thomas, which I say with hesitation, again, reminding you that both of these men are, uh, have forgotten more than I'll know and are uh, smarter than I am on my best day. But we've been using two commentaries, and I've been trying to tell you when I think somebody gets it right and, and somebody uh, misses what I think is what the chapter is saying. And, and Derek Thomas is really, really hard on Elihu in this speech. He gives him credit for being a little more compassionate than the last speech, but he basically ends up dumping Elihu in the same bucket as the other comforters. And I just don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think Elihu is a prophet of God. And uh, Christopher Ash agrees with that. So he begins his chapter on this speech by asking us to picture a really large military campaign. Some of you have been to some of the large battlefields. We, you know, I would lead with character. I've been to Gettysburg a million times. And one of the awe-inspiring things to think about with Gettysburg is we spend an entire day moving around that battlefield, sometimes moving so far between places on the battlefield that we have to get on the bus and drive to another place. The battlefield is enormous. And the part of the battlefield that we cover on Lead with Character isn't even really half of the geography of the battlefield. And there are places, East Cavalry Field, that are on the other side of the interstate, (laughs) so to speak. Uh, Not that there actually are, just wasn't there in 1863. But the battlefield is massive. And so Ash encourages us to think about one of these really large battlefields. And some of these critical moments in battles, in the Battle of Gettysburg, there's a couple that come to mind, where the commander has to order a very specific action that if you are simply looking at that action, it makes almost no sense. One of the most famous ones is you all have heard of Pickett's Charge, 
or Longstreet's assault. And, and people will now look at that and not knowing a lot about the Battle of Gettysburg, they will say, why in the world would he have ordered those troops to walk across that field, <laughs> a wide open flat field where the enemy's on the high ground shooting down at them and they're just going to get mowed down. And people who feel that way about that just don't have all the information. They don't know the big picture of that. There's another moment in the Battle of Gettysburg where the Union commander has to throw the first Minnesota. It was the only Minnesota. They had one. But (laughs) the first Minnesota has to be thrown at this oncoming southern assault, and they're all going to die. And they pretty much all do die. But it buys him the three minutes he needs to get everybody else in place so that they can ultimately repel the assault. But if you just looked at that course of action, why in the world would you send those poor Minnesota soldiers to go die there? It doesn't make sense. And Ash talks about local commanders who can see what's on the ground right in front of them and the overall commander. And the local commander, he says, neither understands the whole picture nor has the authority to command the whole army. Both his understanding and his power are circumscribed. Only the commander-in-chief has the universal grasp of the military realities and the total command of all the troops. Only he can know and do what is needed for victory. And I hope in that the analogy becomes clear. There are plenty of things that God does that we look at the thing in isolation and say, why in the world would you do this? Not just there must be a better way. We think in our hearts, there is a better way. And I am confident I know what it is. And it's not this. But we're the local commanders. And it's not just that we don't have all the knowledge, though that is a really important side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is he commands all the armies. All of them. When we're reading in Isaiah and the Babylonians come and conquer Jerusalem and take them into exile, he commands the Babylonians. And when Cyrus comes and takes out the Babylonians and sends the Israelites back to Jerusalem, he commands Cyrus. He calls Cyrus his shepherd, his servant. He says of a pagan king. Because he commands all of it. Only the commander-in-chief of the whole universe has the universal understanding to know fully just how the victory of good over evil will be won. And that's why as we get toward the end of Job and we start to get some resolution, if not answers, for Job, It's good for us to remember back to the beginning of Job what this is really about. Job is one battle. He's one engagement. He's one section of the field on Gettysburg. There are spots at Gettysburg at the wheat field where there were more casualties in that acre than in all the battles that had come before it. One little battle. It's a big deal. There's a lot happening. But Job is one spot. And it's not that it doesn't matter. It does matter. But it's a universal battle. It's a cosmic battle. And we know from back in chapter 1, it's a battle between God and Satan. 
Satan accusing God that God is not worthy of love just because he's God. He's not worthy of loyalty just because he's God. That the only reason people serve God is because of what God will do for them. The godness of God is on trial in this book. And Job's life is one little battle on that cosmic battlefield. And Job's looking at that saying, this is not good. This is not right. There is a better way to do this. This is not just. This is not okay. And Elihu is going to ask us, by asking Job, to zoom out and stop thinking like local commanders for a minute and recognize who is the commander-in-chief. So Elihu's speech has an introduction and a conclusion and two main parts in the middle. The first main part is about God's dealing with his people, and the second part is about God's governance of the world. And they're bookended by these introductions and conclusions about the glory of God. So that's where we're headed this morning. Karen, would you start 36, 1 through 4? And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is the The speech begins with the general introduction that there's more to be said and that God is the one ultimately who will say it and that we need to grapple with God's truth. What our temptation is when we don't understand, what our temptation is when things are hard is to disengage. To give up either in bitterness, which is a form of giving up, or despair, which is a form of giving up. And you can sprinkle a little bit of of self-righteousness justification on top of either one of those. What we actually need to do is grapple with the truth of God. And so Elihu, again, here, is claiming to be a prophet. He is claiming, at the end of verse 2, to be God's mouthpiece. He's claiming to have received these words from the heavenly realm. Kate, will you turn to Psalm 138? Noah, will you turn to Psalm 139? What, what, What he's claiming is divine inspiration for these words. Now, this is one of the places where I think some of the commentators get it wrong because there's saying that Elihu's claiming to be on equal footing with God and that he's puffed up in his wisdom and knowledge like his friends are. I don't think that's true at all because that's not the words that Elihu uses. Elihu uses very specific language here that he has received this knowledge from far off, from the heavenly realm that is far off. So, Kate, 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. The Lord is high... And knows the haughty from afar. A place where God is, is afar from the haughty. Noah 139.2. You know when I sit up and when I rise up. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. From where? From afar. When wisdom literature wants to draw a contrast between the physical location of our knowledge and wisdom, our haughtiness, and God's knowledge and wisdom, his truth, that's the language that's used, is far off, afar. 
That is a common way in wisdom literature of describing this distinction. And that's exactly what Elihu is doing here. And so his aim is to demonstrate, verse 3, that God is just. And so he has to he has to prepare Job for the justification of the speech that he's about to make. On what basis is Elihu going to speak? Why in the world should Job listen to Elihu? Because my words are coming from God and my motive is right in the defense of God. My authority is right because God gave it to me and it's God honoring. And the content of what I'm saying, verse four, is not false. It is not twisted. It is not perverted. It is reliable. It is not the nonsense your friends were giving you that is God's truth then filtered through this human system that twists everything and makes it nonsense. And so that is why he can speak with the voice of one who is perfect in knowledge. It's not his own voice. He speaks with the prophetic voice. He speaks through the voice of God. He's not being arrogant. He is claiming to speak as a prophet. So that's where we start here. And where he's going to begin his speech, verse 5, yeah, is with this phrase, behold God. So once he gets into speaking, he begins with behold God, which is a very emphatic assertion in Hebrew. And he says it three times in this speech. That is going to be the theme of this speech, that he is going to speak about the glory of God, especially the power of God. Verse 5, behold, God is mighty. Verse 22, behold, God is exalted in his power. Verse 26, behold, God is great. He's calling attention again and again and again to the cosmic power and greatness of God, because the logic of his argument is going to be only that cosmic power can guarantee cosmic justice. There is no other way by which all things could be made right, except behold God. That makes sense? So that's going to be the theme of these two main sections in the speech. Questions about that? Um, I, I think one of the comments you made is when things don't go our way, uh, we're tempted to give up by either being despairing or bitter. Um, and then the, the correct approach is, is what? To grapple with God's work. Truth, yeah, to, to, to grapple with what God must be doing, which doesn't mean to have a satisfying answer for every single thing. It, it is very much the wrestling with God that is the point. Because the point is not that you would be right. The point is not that you would be omniscient. The point is that you would be changed. The point of wrestling with God is that you would be changed. He's not changing, you guys. He's unmovable. And you want him to be that way. Not in the moment. In the moment, you want God to be persuaded by your logic and to do the things you want him to do. But i got to tell you, God is an unmovable object. He will not change. So when you bump up against him, will you? Will you change? Will you be changed? 
That's what his truth is trying to do to you. His truth, in this case, is trying to break down both the system, as Ash has called it, this, this idea of cosmic, immediate, retributive justice that makes sense to us in every situation. Do great, get good. Do bad, get bad. Immediately, no exceptions. It's trying to break that down and say, nope, his ways are not our ways. Bigger things going on here. And it's trying to break down Job's self-righteousness, where Job is saying, because that is not true, God's doing something wrong. Because I know that my way is better. And as he bumps up against God again and again and again, God's truth, what he needs to be is changed. It's only when we are not changed, when we persist. It's such a great tie-in to Isaiah, because the language of stubbornness Isaiah uses this morning is iron sinews... So our, our, what connects our muscles to our bones, our tendons, uh, would be made of iron so that we will not turn our necks. God's over here speaking truth, and we will not even turn our necks because they're made of iron. And then he says a forehead of brass, hard-headed. We are going the way we are going. And that's what these speeches of Job have become. Is let me just run into God again and again and again, demanding my justice. And at some point, that wrestling with the truth will change you. And real quick, so how do you balance that with the bad theology that you were taught as a kid about if you want it, it's bad? <laughs> yeah, what you're asking is a, what's the difference between determination and stubbornness? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> We have to listen to God. God does want persistence. He, he praises the persistent widow. He, he wants us. Sometimes he says not yet to our prayers because we need to ask for it again and again and again and again. And sometimes he says not yet to our prayers because we need to stop asking and be content with where we are. How do I know which situation switch? Uh-huh. <laughs> Usually you don't figure that out yourself. Usually it's someone else telling yeah. you. My, my experience is it's someone else telling you, you're being stubborn here, you need to change. Or you're being persistent, you need to keep at this, keep trying, keep going, keep pushing. But it's someone else who speaks it because usually you don't know the difference. For me. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Unless they're Job's counselors, in which case don't listen to those guys. <laughs> Yeah. Isn't it, is it the case that God's going to change us? Like, we can either wrestle with him and be changed, or we go our own way, and he uses the circumstances of our lives to bring, like, he's going to change us. It could be we choose the better path. If that weren't the last two paragraphs of my sermon, John, I would be happy to answer that question right now. No, you're exactly right. Um, when God's dealing with his own people, which in the text in Isaiah he is, he starts out, listen, O Judah. Like, listen, Jacob. So he's talking to his own people. Stop being stubborn. Stop refusing my word. Draw near to me. That's the language God's using with his own rebellious people. And he is going to change us. And, and so I say in the sermon, and it's not like, I would not pass a theology exam saying it this way, but preaching is persuasion, not just a commentary. Some of us, all of us, are enduring more trials than we have to because we're not listening to God and not following his commandments. 
And some of us are not experiencing the peace that we could be experiencing even in those trials because in the trial we're not drawing near to God. That's not a salvation question. He's talking to his own people. But even his own people are experiencing more trials than they need to, which I know is not theologically precise. But we're experiencing more trials, and we're not experiencing peace within those trials because we are choosing to be heads of brass and uh, iron sinew and to go our own way. All right, so we know God's will is what's happening. His will of decree. <laughs> I repeat, we know God's will is because of what's, what's happening. Okay, If it's happening, it's God's will. But there are multiple ways we use the phrase God's will. Okay, but because it is God's will, we know it is God's will. Yep. The only rational response is to accept it, or it's to surrender to it willingly. The only response of unfallen rationality is to surrender and delight in God's will. Yes, that would be a smart response. That would be a godly, accurate response, yes. But is liking it required? No, because God doesn't like, in that sense, everything that happens. God doesn't like sin. God doesn't like suffering. So he didn't like the cross, but he surrendered to it. He surrender's tough in that one. I'd have to give that some more thought. Jesus certainly, so we can say, Jesus certainly surrendered to it. I mean, which again is such a great reminder. Jesus in his suffering prays, let this cup pass me by. And the father says, no. Jesus. Part of the Trinity. Jesus prayed. No more suffering, please. And the father said, no. Yes, we don't have to like it. God doesn't like it either. So acceptance doesn't require liking it. Correct. Accepting that it is God's will and that God only does that which is good and that this is for our good does not mean enjoying or liking or, you know, clapping for the evil and the suffering that takes place in the working out of his decrees. It's hard to not like it and not resist it. Yes. It's hard to eat spinach. I mean, it's such a trivial analogy, right? It's a... (laughs) (laughs) I have resisted. (laughs) I'm keeping up the good fight. But I know it's a trivial analogy, but it really is the same feeling. Right. Something that you know is good for you. It is hard to see the pile of french fries and to see the side salad and to choose B and not A. Uh, And so it is with God's will. Obviously, way more significant. I I mean, I don't think, it doesn't seem like we're supposed to look at those things like Gandhi and Zen and like everything is just supposed to be detached. That's that's why I do think it is important. If y'all haven't read it, I've, I've mentioned it a few times, but the Kevin DeYoung book, Just Do Something, that's out there on the table, even if you don't want to read the whole book, read the chapter on the different types of God's will. That's really, really important to help you make the distinction between... Sorry, we have some kids sneaking to refill their snack plates. Uh, it's a really important distinction so that you can wrestle with this, not feel guilty in places that you should... You don't need to feel guilty, but also be able to say with confidence, God's will is good, 
which will. <laughs> God is good. God's, uh, God's uh, will of what, whatever comes to pass is for an ultimate good, but not every single thing in between can you look at and say that is good. So the, the chapter can really help you with that. Because we, we, this was a problem, and you talked about what some of us grew up in theologically. Uh, I mean, I know well people who left the Christian faith because the deal that they were told that God made with them did not turn out to be true. Because they were told, be great and get good. Be good and get great. And they saw people who were not as moral as they were, not as on fire for God as they were, get better things in their lives than they got. And when suffering came into their lives, they said, this wasn't the deal. And that's back to Elihu's last speech of why would I do good? If I'm not going to get good results, why would I do good? And Elihu wisely says, boy, is that the wrong question? <laughs> I get it, but that is the wrong question you ask of a holy God. <laughs> All right, let's get into the speech a little bit. We can unpack some more of this as we go. Noah, uh, no, you already read. Andrew, can you read 5 through 7? Yep. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sits them forever, and they are exalted. So this goes back to what John said a minute ago. God's going to get his way. God's determination to work out his purposes of cosmic justice will not be frustrated. There is nothing and no one that will change or frustrate the purposes of God. He is set in his purposes. And because he's the commanding officer who doesn't just know everything, but controls everything, there's no doubt about the outcome here. And so the cosmic justice is absolutely secure. And God uses that power. He could use it for anything he wanted. The Greek gods are capricious and arbitrary. Gods of other religions are very uh, self-serving <laughs> that they will give good to people who give the most back to them. Uh, this God emphatically is about gracious justice for the believing oppressed. I don't remember whether it was last week or the week before. I think it was when Craig read, so that was last week. Do you remember in Revelation? It talks about the martyrs. Where are the martyrs? They have a special place in, in, in God's economy. God, God is uh, the, oppre- the extreme. The most extreme form of oppression, which is martyrdom. God's justice is for them. He will avenge. He will bring justice to them. God uses his justice for the believing oppressed. John, can you read 8 through 10? And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. First of all, verse 8 just totally upends the prosperity gospel. There are righteous who are in the cords of affliction. The righteous do suffer. 
And without taking that away, that those who are righteous suffer through no fault of their own, he also says, and this is similar to the argument he made directly to Job a few chapters ago, that suffering in the righteous also often exposes pride in their hearts that they didn't know was there. Exposes rebellion in their hearts that had not had cause to surface yet, which is what happened with Job. Is Job was a faithful follower of God in a season of plenty. And then a season of want comes, and it is a dramatic season of want. I'm not arguing with that. All of a sudden, Job is not so happy to receive what he said in the beginning. We've received good from God. Will we not receive this also? And then you get a few chapters in, and Job's like, no, we shouldn't receive this also. I don't want this. I don't deserve this. And so Elihu's saying both. He is saying, yes, the righteous do suffer. Prosperity is wrong. Prosperity gospel is wrong. Sometimes the righteous suffer not of their own fault. But it is also the case that very often when the righteous suffer, it has the effect of bringing sin to light in us. And that God is summoning, this is the end of verse 10, he's summoning his people to repentance by exposing the pride and rebellion that's in their hearts. That's what God wants. We tend to think of bad things as being punishment. I did this and God's going to punish me. But what, what if what God, what, that is a, um, that's a very human view of God, that God is like us and can't control his temper. And what God wants most is personal vengeance. You did bad. I want to punish you. That's the view a lot of us have of God. The actual God as he is as God, his end game for you is repentance. A closer walk with him, not pushing you away, not slapping you on the wrist, grabbing you by the hand and pulling you to himself. And so he will do what he will do to bring about that end. And we say, well, I would have, I would have gladly uh, walked with God with something easier and less dramatic with this. And Job implicitly says, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because the heart that is moved toward God cannot be contingent on its circumstances. It's got to be the season of plenty and the season of want. The heart is the same. And if the difference in our circumstances creates a dramatic difference in our response to God, we don't, we're not there yet. We're not living with the heart of faith despite our circumstances. And that's part of being a fallen human. That's part of sanctification. That's part of sin, putting sin to death. That doesn't make you some you know, special category of horrific Christian. But it is what God's doing. And it's why he can't be done with us. We say, Lord, can't you? I've quoted the line before from Fiddler on the Roof. You know, Let somebody else be your people for a while. <laughs> I don't want you working on me anymore. But is that really what you want? I know you want less suffering, and I know you want less pain and hardship. I'm, I'm with you. I get it. Kathy's right. We don't have to like it. But do you really want God to be done with you? Do you really want God to say, fine, have it your way? Or do you want God to say, no matter what, 
you will be with me on the last day. No matter what, I will conform you to the image of my son. That's what God is saying to his people. And we're saying, can't you just do it easier and faster? <laughs> well, I think I always fall into the category of saying, I don't really want an A in this. I'll just take a B minus. Yeah. But it's sort of like, do you surrender all? It's binary. You, surrender you will either be perfectly like Christ right. or you will not stand and find favor on the day of judgment. There, there, there is no in-between. That's the whole, you've lost your first love, we're hearing in Revelation. That's the whole lukewarm, we're hearing in Revelation. You're either in or you're out. And that doesn't mean that we're good little works righteousness people. That, we, that, that actually is what puts you out, is when you start to think that that's what's going to get you there. But you are either all surrendered, or you're holding something back. And what God is going to do from, that, from the day you believe until the day you die, if God loves you, what he's going to do is pick on the things you haven't surrendered. And he's going to expose them, and it's going to be brutal. <laughs> it's going to be brutal. And he's going to make you more and more like Jesus. Renee, will you read 11 through 15? focus. <laughs> say, listen and serve him, and complete their days in prosperity but if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger, but they do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cold prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. It is not possible for me to imagine two better aligned texts than this and the sermon text that were on my schedule six months ago for the sermon text and that I had no idea when we would get here in Job because this has been chaotic. And, and, and what Renee just read is the text in Isaiah. There are two choices for God's people. Job is God's people. Elihu is the prophet, like Isaiah, talking to God's people. And God's people are in bitter distress. Exile in Isaiah, Job and Job. (laughs) And the prophet of God is saying to God's people, you have two choices. Two possible responses to the loving discipline of God. You can either listen to God, which is the whole theme of the Isaiah chapter today. Hear me, listen to me. You can either listen to God, heed his discipline, as Kathy said, surrender to it, bow down under it in humble penitence. And what happens to those who do that? Verse 11, richly blessed. Not health and wealth kind of blessed, life with God kind of blessed, peace in their bad circumstances kind of blessed. Or, verse 12, you can refuse to listen. And you will perish. And you will die without knowledge. What a waste. What a loss. And, and there's, there's a bifurcation there, right? There's the, the ultimate rejection of God's grace in which you perish in your sins. But there's also what we said a little while ago, that even for believers, this, this living now without the peace and comfort of God's presence in our sufferings, that's a choice. 
It's a choice. You can see where one could get very confused with the whole prosperity. Yes. Um, yeah, because, and I don't know if it's because it's the English translation, translation, but it's, you know, you will live in prosperity and pleasantness, yep. right? Which sort of isn't you know, uh, having consequences or having bad things happen to you, pleasantness in, in English anyway. Are we redefining those terms? I don't think we're redefining them. I think we're reading the Bible's definitions. And, and if, I, if I summarize it and really push you on it, do you believe it's better to have money and health or daily satisfaction in God? I'm not saying one excludes the other. Right, right, right. But if it does, are you really willing to tell me that not being sick and having money is better, is more blessed than a closer walk with thee. If you believe that, you're not a Christian. Like That's a really harsh way to say it, but you're not a Christian. If the appeal of God himself is not enough for you, then this isn't the religion for you. So yes, I want to be healthy. I want the money. I would like those kinds of blessings too. And God does call them blessings. But they are an entire category below what the Bible means when it says blessed, which is God. With God. That's all the Beatitudes. So what this means is spiritual prosperity. It's, it, the Bible would resist just calling it spiritual prosperity. It's the whole of the human, what it means to be alive. I mean, Jesus said to have life and to have life abundantly. It is, it is foundationally spiritual. But there's not some, some dividing wall between spiritual and everything else. It, it, it affects our entire perspective on everything in life. It's how, even when we have what the world would say is only a little bit, we are genuinely content with it. The, the money as money isn't a thing. It's the what is my experiential attitude toward that money. That's more than just spiritual. We, we don't want the money just because we want money. We want the money because it gives us satisfaction, security, peace. If you could actually have satisfac satisfaction, security, and peace with any amount of money, that's abundant life. So it's not, it's, not, it's not just spiritual. It is such a foundational spiritual reality that it impacts every aspect of our being. Sounds like Paul saying, content in all circumstances, means that I don't have to be dependent on having all those things to be live a pleasant life. That's right. And it's why the other side of the coin is, is right too, which, which is God shows us again and again, when our hearts are there, he may well give us money. Money's not bad. Right? What's best for our hearts is what he will give us. If we decide we cannot be secure and satisfied unless we have this money, don't be surprised if he takes it away from yeah. you or never gives it to you. Or, uh, and that's what the health and wealth people get wrong, is that it's way too transactional. They make it, it non-spiritual, that it's a mechanical relationship with God. I do this thing, and God gives me that thing. That's the deal. And it's not right. 
It's God has the whole realm of things, the cattle, all the hills. It's all his. Health is his. Sickness is his. He's the commander-in-chief. He controls it all. And, and so he looks at us. This is not a careful way to say it. And he looks at the perfect image of Christ. And he looks at his inventory of things he can use. And he says, here's how I'm going to get them from here to there. And that is foundationally, but not only spiritual. It's amazing anybody stays in a church that preaches it's, I mean, my favorite, I quote it all the time, but it's my favorite interaction in the entire New Testament is these are hard words. And this idea of, are you going to go away too? Where else will we go? Like there is a sense, the, the, back to the surrender concept. Why surrender is so important is not with any resentment, not with any bitterness, not with, but, but surrender. Where else would we go? You have the words of life. You're the commander-in-chief. You're the one whose cosmic justice will be done. I don't get it. I don't get it. But you're you. And that's enough for me. And it's got to be enough. That's what faith is. Faith is God is enough. God's enough that I'll listen. God's enough that I'll draw near no matter my circumstances. God's enough. And Job says, no, there's this abstract sense of justice that God and I both should submit to, and let's go let that be the judge of what happened here. And Elihu's like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> no. No, that's not how any of this works. God is God. Uh, God delights to use affliction as his means to deliver the afflicted, verse 15, bringing them to the place of humble, open ears and soft hearts by means of adversity. Paradoxically, I love this line, paradoxically, there is an adversity gospel that goes far deeper than the so-called prosperity gospel. The adversity gospel is much uh, more trustworthy than the prosperity gospel. The system that says, do good, get great, is pretty unreliable. But the idea that God is using adversity to draw us closer to him, to expose sinful hearts, to make us more humble, more open to hearing him, that's pretty reliable. <laughs> you can bank on that one. So that is the mighty determination that God has to save the righteous punish the wicked, ultimate cosmic justice. That's the first section of this speech of Elihu. We are almost out of time, so let's stop there. What questions do we have about that much? While well, I'm looking to see if I missed any good Derek Thomas nuggets from that much. He says, Elihu's point, at least part of it, is to suggest that there is more to suffering than just punishment. He gives suffering a creative as well as a destructive purpose. When we think about suffering, we tend to, to focus on the destructive part of suffering, what gets broken. But God is also aware of the creative function and purpose of suffering. Uh, the, the common example in Scripture is childbirth, this pain in childbearing. It's destructive. It's bad. 
for a really obviously and clear and easily understandable good purpose. The absence of any creative purpose tends to make the pain worse. Those are the ones that really get to us or when we can't see the creative purpose. The ones that we really struggle with, the ones where we find ourselves coming up again and again and again, crashing into God, demanding an answer, demanding change, demanding, or where we can't see the creative purpose. It doesn't mean it's not there. It means he's not given it to us to see. And so Job is meant to learn something from that pain. I don't know if anybody else's experience is like mine, but uh, when I am receiving God's blessings as I define them, I eat what I want, that does not draw me closer to God generally. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Psalm 119.71. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. This has been the cry of God's people for thousands of years. For as long as God has had fallen people, this has been the cry of God's people. We're in good company. This is the whole point of Job, is for us to see the creative purpose in God's destruction as a concept, and that even when we don't have insight into that, when we don't have the vision as to what that is, or... When we see it and we don't think it's enough to justify what God has done, God is still God. And as he'll say in Isaiah, and there's no other. And that's the part you're surrendering to. The godness of God wins. Whatever else you put on the other side of the scales, it's not going to outweigh the godness of God. And when times are good, we can very quickly figure out We want that. We wouldn't want it any other way. But when things are hard, it is hard to look at that and say, all to Jesus, I surrender. Closing thoughts? John? When you're maybe in a season of there's not a big discipline going on and life is good. Yeah. You should feel really guilty. Yeah, that's the worry of. Well, no, what? How is God going to discipline? Yeah, what a great, what a great tool. I, I am very sympathetic with what you're saying, even though the words I'm about to say are not going to be terribly sympathetic. I am mentally very sympathetic with that. What a great tool for Satan to use, and what a disappointment that even when God has us in a season of plenty. The joy is sucked out of it because we're saying, when's he going to take it all away? That even when we are walking closely with God and enjoying the richness of his fellowship and blessings, Satan throws this wrench into it. So we say, well, God doesn't really want me to be happy, so he's just setting me up for worse destruction. Right? I mean, that's, that's what's happening in our minds. We have, get thee behind me, Satan. We have got to cast out the evil one on that because God... If you, who are an earthly father, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven and delight in giving good gifts to his children? God, sometimes we get to the point where we think that God must not be paying attention because something good happened to us. And that as soon as he notices that we're doing okay for a few weeks, he's going to come mess it up a little bit. 
he knows how to give good gifts to his children, and we should enjoy them. Andrew? It was the same thing. Eat, drink, and be merry for the Christian versus the non-Christian. Yeah, eat, drink, and be merry in its context is because nothing matters. It doesn't matter what you do. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Eat, right? eat, eat, drink, and be merry is you may as well enjoy what you can enjoy now because nothing else is going to happen and it doesn't matter. For the Christian, it's delighting in the gifts of a loving God and Father who desires to dispense blessings on his children. I'll say as a father, it's very frustrating when uh, you take your children and you give them some good gift and they're not able to enjoy it because there's anxiety that it will be over soon. Or, it's like, guys, this is the good gift. How much of our lives are lived with that posture of God's given us good gifts and, and we go to reach for them and then look up like we're afraid he's going to slap our hand if we take it. And he's saying, what, what are you talking about? I'm here. 